Hello and good morning. Thanks for braving the rain to come see us today to worship together. So, breathing. We're all dry inside. All right. Now, when you tell a story, a good story, you can start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Or you can start at the end and work backward. You could take one giant story and break it into a bunch of different parts. Or you could talk about a bunch of random anecdotes that seems like nothing at all. But no matter what, a good story usually involves good characters, right? Connecting to people. Now, my current favorite author of novels is Leanne Moriarty. Not just because she has a cool last name, but I like her different writing style. And one of the aspects I like most is how she unveils her characters. I can start at the beginning of one of her books, and I can have a certain opinion about this character. But a few chapters in, some innocuous detail will come up, and I'm like, whoa, that's different now. Now my mindset's changed. And then halfway through the book, something else happens, and I'm like, whoa, I never saw that character like that before. And I'm impressed with the way that she can slowly, not give me all the information at once, but just slowly bring it out. But my mindset keeps changing. And that's the thing about real life, is that when you hear someone's story, it changes your perspective. Now, we're in a series where we're talking about the parables of Jesus. I like that he told stories. Um, I think maybe that's something that shows if we like stories, we're made in God's image, he likes to tell good stories. But not only do we have spiritual concepts that we can understand, but when Jesus talks about his good news through story, we can also look at the way he interacts with people. And we can learn a little something about communication skills as well in our application. So we're going to talk about not only telling good stories through this series, but listening to good stories. Now, listening, it's like an action sport. I took a listening class when I was in college. It was at the end of my college time, and it was some of the worst months of Steve's life. Because I had to keep a listening journal. And all the theories we talked about in class, we had to write down when we saw people listening well and when they weren't listening well. And I have documented data of the time Steve wasn't listening to me. He loves it. We learned a lot. It was good. We survived. But listening involves showing people they are valued. When you give your time and energy to someone to listen to them, you respect them. You see them as a person. Now, last week, Chris mentioned that we can listen physically. We can make eye contact, which you're doing very well right now. Thank you. You can lean into someone. You can reach out. You can put down your phone for a little bit and truly listen. But another thing that involves good listening is internal. It's your motivation. Why you listen reflects how you listen. Now, if you are listening because you are going to be evaluated on something, maybe you have a job training, and you have to listen for your job, you're going to listen studiously, right? You're going to take good notes, and you're going to really pay attention to the details because it affects your future. Now, if you are political and you're listening to um, an opponent speak, you're going to be listening combatively. 
You're going to look for the flaws in their reasoning to prove that you are right. If you're listening to a friend, they just had a car accident, you're going to listen empathetically. You're going to care about what happened to them. You're going to want to know why they had pain. You're going to feel that, right? So all these are different ways of listening. Now, why you're listening determines what you focus on. And today's parable, Jesus spoke to an audience. They had a specific motivation in mind. They wanted to trap Jesus. But Jesus tried to shift their motivation. He tried to give them a parable so that they would look from a different perspective. Now, I'm way off. I missed a slide. No worries. Um, I want to talk about a dinner party today. So that's why I'm being an empathetic speaker. Because you're going to have to sit there and listen to Jesus talking at a dinner party. I gave you a snack. So go ahead. Open it up. It's some popcorn. If you want to have a snack during the sermon, we'll unravel all your bags now. You can go ahead and eat because we're going to gather together. You know the best stories happen when you're around food, right? Have dinner with somebody. Share a story. So here we are. Have your snack and listen to this story. All right? Now, we're going to visualize this scene. Jesus is at a dinner party. And when I throw a dinner party, I'm not great at it. Okay? So I have to channel my mother. My mom is a great hostess. Now, I asked her to send me a picture of her typical dining table. She actually got a new table, and I haven't even sat at it yet, so I can't wait. But look how pretty that is. She brings beauty into the experience. So that's how I visualize a dinner party. Everyone gathered around, beautiful place settings. Now, there's a drawing that apparently I flipped on here before. This is a drawing of how the dinner party might have looked in Jesus' time. See how the tables are shaped in a U? And they're low to the ground. Everyone's laying down, reclining, as they said. And these, I guess, are some entertainment going on. The servants would bring out the food in the middle. Now, one thing to note is where you were placed in the room by your host said something about your place in society. Different cultures might say, oh, well, the center table is the most prominent. But some said the other sides, too. So, but when you got assigned a seat, you would know kind of where you were. And the other thing was, you were supposed to have lively conversation with your couchmates. That was considered the cultural time of the day. Now, I don't, I don't know what it would be like to lay back. I, I eat better sitting up, so I don't understand this. But that is the custom of the day. Now, we also have to look at who Jesus was eating with. It says that he, if you look in Luke 14, where our story takes place today, Jesus was invited to dinner by a Pharisee. Now, The Pharisees of the day were the religious leaders. They set the spiritual tone for an entire people group. But they were also kind of, you know, a little full of themselves. They were well-respected. They were close to God. And when Jesus came along and started saying he was doing something for God, but yet he didn't follow their regulations and rules and customs, then he wasn't making any friends there. They were a little ticked off. So they kept inviting him to dinner and thinking, okay, we'll find a way to trap him. We'll get him to say something crazy or do something crazy. And then we can prove that we're right and he's wrong. We can defame him among his followers. So they're approaching this dinner and they're probably listening combatively. 
Now, would you eat with people who didn't like you? Not me. Now, maybe some of you out there are more spirited and would like the challenge. But so that's the setting we have. Visualize this scene and visualize Jesus eating with people who didn't like him. So Jesus does one controversial thing, and then he says three other things that kind of mess with the Pharisees. The first thing that Jesus does, I'm calling it our Sabbath scandal. So he's invited to dinner on the Sabbath. And as we may know, on the Sabbath, you weren't supposed to do any work. Now, that's what it says in scripture. But the Pharisees had a list. They decided, let's define work for people. So they came up with all these very specific regulations of work means this. You can't do this, this, and this, or that's breaking the Sabbath. Healing would have been one of these situations. It says at the beginning of Luke 14 that there was a man among this dinner party. Picture everybody mingling, walking in the door. They haven't sat at the table yet. There's a man in the room who clearly needs some help. It says that he had some sort of swelling. There's something wrong with him. He could use some healing. Why is he there? Hello? It's a setup. Jesus sees the man. What does he do? He heals him. Of course he heals him because he cares about people. And he looks at the Pharisees and everybody who's at the dinner and he said, if your child or an ox of yours fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull them out? Don't you care about a living thing even if it's your property on the Sabbath? Silence. Crickets. No response. All right, moving on. So Jesus starts to observe. Everybody starts to go into the dining room. This is where all the tables are laid out. People are kind of jostling for position maybe, maybe looking at where the host is assigning them to sit, judging if they're better than the person next to them. And Jesus has thoughts about this, of course. He kind of disguises it as, they call this a parable, a mini little parable in here. He says, let's start a conversation about seats. When you go into a dinner party, if you choose the best seat in the house, see, there was my trap. Okay, look, there's a trap. Sorry. All right, Star Wars reference. All right, so Jesus is watching everybody pick a seat. And he says, if you go in and you said, I want the best seat in the house. I needed someone on a throne. I thought Taylor Swift would do. And then what if the host comes in and says, I'm sorry, there's someone here more important you need to reduce your prominent seat. Wouldn't that be embarrassing? So instead, he says, choose a lower seat. And then the host will come in and say, oh, you're very important. Move on up. So Jesus is, he's really kind of, he's talking about humility here, but he's a little jabbing at the pomp and circumstance of the day. Like, where are these people finding their value? They're looking at each other to compare they're not looking in the right place for where they stand. So, the next thing Jesus says, you have your party list, check it twice. Jesus now decides to give advice directly to his party host. He's really winning friends here, people. So he looks at the host and he goes, you know what? Next time you have a party, I have an idea. I think instead of inviting all the rich and all the influential, 
even your friends or family, if you invite them to a party, guess what they're going to do? They're going to eventually invite you to a party back, and then you're going to be repaid, and it's just going to go back and forth. He said, to truly be blessed, why not you go out and invite the people who would find a party a luxury? Look at the poor. Look at the disabled among you. Wouldn't they appreciate being invited to a party? He says this directly to his host. And I'm thinking if I were there, I'd be like, um, awkward. This would be my face. Oh, it's uncomfortable, guys, right? Like Jesus is just calling out his host. And one person finally responds. Everybody had been quiet. But the one person speaks up and says, blessed is the one who eats the feast in the kingdom. All right. Apparently that guy was trying to sound smart, but he also had this tone about him. Like, yeah, of course, I can picture myself at the feast of God. I can picture myself in heaven. So we've set this whole situation up. We've got these people looking at Jesus, trying to see what he's going to say to them. They're all feeling pretty good about themselves. And Jesus is realizing they're not taking it as vice, his advice. He's speaking truth to them, but it hasn't clicked. So he decides to tell a story. We're going to actually read this story in Luke 14. And I want to start with verses 16 through 20, Jill, please. Preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please, please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, those listening in the room would notice, and the host in the story would notice, that these were not typical excuses. I mean, they really shouldn't affect a person's ability to go to this feast. It was kind of like the ancient equivalent of, I've got to wash my hair, so I can't come to your party. But actually, if you look at verse 16, it says that they had been invited to the party. So maybe there was a save the date that sent out. They'd already kind of RSVP'd and said they were going to come. But then on the night of the party, custom was a servant would go around and bring people in. It was this lovely ritual. And that's when they started to decline, making all these excuses. So it was a sign of disrespect. Something had happened between the original idea of the party and the original guest list and then the actual party night. Something might have happened to this person and now people are trying to distance themselves from him. Maybe he did something, maybe they learned something about him and now they're all making their excuses not to come. So let's see what the host does. Verses 21 through 24, please. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So here in the story, when Jesus describes the situation, 
the story matches what he just gave the advice to his host, right? Invite those who can't pay you back. Invite those who would love to be invited to a party. And that's what happened here. The host ignored that advice first. He first invited the rich and the powerful. But then when no one came, he offered his banquet to anyone. Now, what does this parable mean? Well, the best and the brightest have already studied it. So when I looked up in the commentary, I liked that they said it could mean three different things. According to which perspective you looked at, there's three different lessons that can be learned here. And I thought, that's great. That's connecting with different characters in the story. Now, if the listeners at dinner that night, if they could picture themselves as the host of the party, then what was Jesus trying to say? Stop worrying about what people think about you. Don't just invite the rich and the powerful. But what did that mean to their daily lives? The Pharisees were out, and they were supposed to be the religious leaders of the day. If they were only spending their time with the influential, were they truly ministering to everyone who had a need? They were needed to reach out to every person, whether they were low or high in society. Now, if they pictured themselves as the invited guests, then there's a limited time offer. The party host, he didn't keep going back and begging these people, come to my party. No, he decided to shift the invitation. And perhaps Jesus was looking at the Pharisees and saying, this is God's way. I'm telling you God's way. But there's a limited time that we all have to learn that. Now, if they pictured themselves, and I doubt they would, but if they pictured themselves as the people on the street, and if we imagine that, what would that mean? That God's kingdom is for everyone. That it doesn't matter if you don't have all the possessions in the world, if you don't have a lot of wealth, if you don't have a lot of standing in society. God values you, and that is most important. So, which one of these did Jesus actually mean? It could have been all three. The Spirit moves and convicts our hearts when stories are told. And perhaps the people there needed to hear all three of these messages. The point of stories is that it makes abstract concepts personal, right? Jesus was trying to take his idea, this truth, and bring it home. He thought if you put it in a person form, then maybe they would grasp the idea. Now, that happens today too. When we take abstract ideas and make them personal, we remember them. We connect to them. This is Willa and the girls of Kaylin's Girl Scout troop, sixth graders. Now, one of our Girl Scout leaders said, oh, I heard this person speak on the Homeless Coalition the other day, and I think they would be good to come to talk to our Girl Scout troop. And I wasn't really sure what that was going to be like. And there was a man who worked there, and he started to talk to the girls, and he gave them some nice ideas. He talked about being an advocate, and he gave some good principles. But the most powerful thing he did was he brought Willa with him. And he told her, share your story with these girls. Willa and her husband worked at the Jurgens factory just up the street here. It's now KAO. You might have heard of the brand. She worked up in the office and he worked down at the plant. And one day, they called her and said, something's happened. And when she ran down there, her husband had a heart attack and he died there in, at work. And she said, something snapped. 
And she said, I couldn't speak. I just shut myself off. She said, there's no way I could go back in there to that place where he died and work again. And she just closed herself off to other opportunities and she didn't work anymore. And she eventually lost her home and she was out on the streets. And she was living that way for five years and she said she would try all these different ways to survive. And slowly she learned about different services that were offered in the city. And she ended up at the Anna Louise house. But she still wasn't talking much. And they looked at her and they said, you have a story to tell. Won't you tell it? She said, I don't want to talk to anybody. She said, I was angry at everybody. But they finally, they gave her a pen and paper and said, why don't you write it down? So she started writing poetry. And they printed it for her. And she read some of these poems to our girls. And she talked about the desperation she felt. And you know what each poem also brought? Hope in God. She said that's what got her through. That was the way she started to speak again. And she said, now you can't get me to stop talking. But you know what? When our girls are down at Finley Market and they see someone holding up street vibes to sell, they might run into Willa, their friend. Their friend who was once experiencing homelessness. Or if they see somebody selling the magazine and it's not Willa, they'll know on page 13, every issue, there's a poem by Willa. And maybe, just maybe, if our girls are walking down the street and they see someone laying on a bench with a backpack full of belongings, maybe they'll know that that person has a story, that that person is valuable, that that person breaks the stereotypes we have of homelessness, all because Willa shared her story. A story is an invitation into someone's perspective. And you know what? Jesus, didn't he come and dwell in our perspective for a while? He didn't just imagine what it was like to be human. He limited his divinity and became humanity. He lived as a child. He was an awkward adolescent for a while. He was a local celebrity as an adult. He dealt with hunger and thirst. He was probably dirty at times, and he had maybe some smelly followers who never really understood all the things that he said. But he came. He didn't just tell stories. He became the story. Well, that's what he could do, but what can we do? We see people all the time, and I can't get in your mind, and you can't get into mine. I don't fully understand what it's like to live in your shoes, to know all the hurts and the fears, to know all your joys. So what do we do? We need to... We need to listen. We talked about that. Listening with empathy. But how are you going to listen unless you ask? And you know what? In order to ask someone their story, you're going to have to move a little closer. And I love what Brene Brown says. It's hard to hate people close up. So 
when we move closer, when we ask people their stories, when we listen with empathy, we're going to develop God's love. We're going to show people value. Now, I don't know about you, but in today's culture, it seems like we need to listen more. And I know it's easy to think like, oh yes, I can tell you, I've got a list. These are the people that need to listen more and talk less because they are belligerent and awful. But you and I need to listen. Even to people we would rather punch in the face, they've got a perspective and if we're wanting them to hear us, we need to listen to them, even when that's difficult. I say I love to listen to people and I love to empathize, but there's people's perspectives I haven't asked yet. There's friends out there I haven't moved close enough to hear them out. And maybe they're just waiting. Maybe they're waiting for me to dig deeper, to stop talking and listen and be quiet long enough for them to share a story they haven't been brave enough to tell yet. We show Christ's love and give people a gift when we value them with our listening. Let's listen with empathy. And then God's spirit will move as he promises to do. And then he can open up doors for us to speak about his good news. Let's pray. God, you give us an opportunity to hear things all day long, but sometimes we don't always listen. It seems like an easy thing to do, but it's also hard. Please capture our attention this week. May we open our eyes and look around to see those whose stories need to be told. And let's ask and listen, Lord. We, we give you our ears and our minds and our hearts. Use them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.